0: Gray Simons stands tall in every aspect that makes a great athlete and a great wrestler and a great person. Gray Simons will always be one of the all-time greats. He dominated everybody. He
1: won every national tournament he was in. Won four NAI championships, three NCAA championships. He'd have been a four-timer. He had he even been eligible. There was nobody could stay with him.
2: He was known to be the best 118-pounder in the country. And there was no one else to match him. To, to make two Olympic teams, he could have made a third Olympic team, but he, he decided he did not want to give up his time with his team.
1: I'd work out with him anytime I could, and of course, he could beat anybody from his weight the whole way through heavyweight. Gray took
2: wrestling to another level. The greatest wrestlers, you would teach them one hold, and they would come back and show you 10 different ways to do that one hold. They would be the innovators. I
1: would not go on the mat unless he was in my corner. He'd be, be patient.
0: And then all of a sudden, you're 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 taken down and you're, you're 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 down and you're on your back. That's how Gray was in practice. And then he would uh, he would laugh.
3: I'm Jason Bryant, and from the National Wrestling Hall of Fame's Etched in Stone series, this is Seven, the story of Olympian Gray Simons, college wrestling's only seven-time national champion. At the conclusion of 1960, Gray Simons had found himself already a two-time NAI national champion, an NCAA champion, and he'd finished fifth at the Olympic Games in Rome. Coming back for his last two years of collegiate competition, team captain Gray Simons of Lockhaven State Teachers College was heading toward uncharted territory in college wrestling. As of 1960, there had only been 18 three-time NCAA champions. The NAI was in its infancy, starting to sanction a national championship in 1958. Right now, wrestling is dominated by the power schools, large state universities, and land-grant schools with money and resources. The same could be said for wrestling through the end of the 1950s. Individually, small schools had standouts, but of those 18 three-time champions, only four came from what you'd call small colleges. Bill Cole, Bill Nelson and Keith Young from Iowa State Teachers College, now known as the University of Northern Iowa, were part of the 1950 national championship team. Another was Lowell Lang from tiny Cornell College in Mount Vernon, Iowa. To this day, the only private college to ever win the NCAA wrestling title. Cornell College did so with the Dream Team of 1947. But the dominance of the sports stars was still centered around wrestling's college hotspots, Oklahoma and Iowa. From 1928 to 1959, 16 of those 18 three-time champions were from schools in those two states. In 1961, Iowa State's Larry Haynes would make it 17 out of 19. The only two champions from out east were Hugh and Ed Peary of Pittsburgh, who interestingly enough were the sons of Rex Peary, who won three NCAA titles for Oklahoma State, then known as Oklahoma A&M, from 1933 to 1935. With the first NCAA title claimed as a sophomore, Gray Simons from Lockhaven was no longer a surprise to anyone, but could he be the first small school wrestler from out east to win three NCAA championships? In that era, college wrestling in Pennsylvania wasn't just centered around Penn State and Pittsburgh, although they were the powerhouses in the central and western part of the state, with Lehigh holding it down out east. In the Pennsylvania State College Conference, rivalries were brewing with Lockhaven, Bloomsburg, and Shippensburg, to name a few. Here's Jack Day, Lockhaven native and bald eagle wrestler.
1: And People would line up in the wintertime, cold outside, line up down the street, for hours before the matches because the pace of Thomas Fieldhouse was just packed. It was a real exciting time to wrestle because you would get a takedown or you would score a point, the place erupted, and Gray was the reason for that. They came to see him more than any of us.
3: Fred Powell, who grew up with Gray in the neighborhoods of Ocean View and Norfolk and later his Lockhaven Haven teammate, remembers the draw for Gray as well
2: well uh Elock lockheaven he was people knew gray simons it was just one of those things but it was such an easy comfort university it wasn't anything he, he didn't go around bragging about himself he was just gray and people just knew him as gray and uh but they they packed the place to see him wrestle and uh i remember uh, we would go out places to eat or something and gray hardly ever had to buy anything but people want to treat him because he was such an icon there and so well respected and but for Gray he's just one of those unassuming guys and you just say uh, okay well what are we going to do let's you know, he was not that braggart type thing. In
3: 1961 Lockhaven was in the midst of a pretty solid season they'd won the Pennsylvania State College Conference and were threats to win the NAIA championship for the first time. The NAIA tournament was held in Golden, Colorado, just outside of Denver. A couple weeks later, the NCAA championships will be held at Corvallis, Oregon, home of the Oregon State Beavers. So how would Lockhaven get there? They'd hop in the car and drive cross-country. Here's Gray Simons explaining the 1961 trip to Nationals.
4: The coach and two wrestlers in the front and three wrestlers were in the back. I
3: mean, what type of hotels do you stay at? How How do you book rooms in the 50s?
4: Well, you, you, I don't know if you had them, you know, you just find a place, you pull over, and we get uh, three rooms for six people. Well, it was pretty exciting. Uh, we had a half a suitcase apiece. How do you
3: have a half a suitcase?
4: <laughs> you open it up, that's his half, this is my half. You know, Coach Jack drove most of the way, and then we, you know, he let, you know, somebody else would drive and he'd take a rest, you know, and we'd stop. And, you know, we were all on a diet, so he couldn't eat that much anyway.
3: Jack Day remembers a couple different things that made those drives a little bit more harrowing than just not eating.
1: Of course, we drove out there and went from there to Corvallis, Oregon and wrestling in NCAAs. Again, we're gone by car, you know, and that's tough. Coach Jack tended to fall asleep at the wheel all the time. So we had to keep one guy beside your coach and keep him from falling asleep while the rest of us would rest. And we'd switch off with the, uh, the guy, the co-pilot, we called him. you got to stay awake up there because the rest of us are resting. Cause...
3: Still wrestling dual meets at 123 pounds. Gray bounced between 115 and 123 for tournaments as well but when the postseason rolled around he'd go back to 115. In that drive to Golden Colorado with Lockhaven bringing five wrestlers to the NAIA championships Gray Simon's quest for a title would begin with an 11-1 victory over Dwayne Schmitz of Valley City State before beating Bill Seary of Colorado School of Mines 14-1 in the semifinals. Simons would pin Bank Swan of Moorhead State in six minutes and 10 seconds for his third NAIA championship. But it wasn't just Gray Simons celebrating success this time around, as four of the five Lock Haven wrestlers made the finals. Biff Walliser won the championship at 130 pounds, while Jack Day and Bill Bailey were runners-up at 137 and 147. Lock Haven Outdistance hosts Colorado School of Mines, 50 to 35, to give Coach Hubert Jack his only national championship title as a coach. While Simon's performance was pivotal for the team championship, his leadership was probably more crucial. Here's 137-pound national runner-up
1: Jack Day. But we only had like five guys and we won the championship. You know, he was, again, he was our inspiration. Everybody went out there, man, they just gave it all. We went out there well, three or four days ahead of time because of the altitude. Coach Jack was very smart that way. He took us out there in the first couple of days, we were dying. But, you know, we adjusted, you're a top athlete, you adjust quickly to the the oxygen. And, uh, but again, again, Gray was our inspiration. He was our leader, you know. And I think we did well because of him. He just, you felt if you didn't do your best, or you didn't place or win, you were going to let Gray out. And, uh, but that was, that was an exciting tournament.
3: Even more challenging than keeping Coach Jack awake on the drive to Corvallis from Golden was the competition at the 1961 NCAA Championships, where Gray Simons would be the only bald eagle wrestler to place. The returning champion, and a surprise to no one, Simons came in as the top seed and beat Oklahoma State's Gio Umazawa 8-2 in the first round. Then he faced a familiar foe in the quarterfinals, Bill Merriam of Lehigh, his former high school teammate. Now, if you remember, Gray Simons couldn't wrestle the second half of his senior year. The wrestler who won that weight class in Gray's absence was Merriam. At the bottom half of the bracket, the number two seed was Dick Wilson, who Simons defeated the year before from the University of Toledo. The number three seed was high school teammate, Oakla Johnson, who was a four-time state champion at Granby, wrestling for Michigan State and Virginia Tech's Mike Grandstaff who knocked Gray out of the starting lineup at Granby as a freshman and then beat him in the state finals as a junior. Gray would beat four-seeded Don Webster of Iowa State in the semifinals before, again, drawing Wilson in the finals. Simons would win the second NCAA championship of his career with a 7-3 victory over Wilson. The match strategy, though, went way back a full year in a conversation Gray had with Hubert Jack following his overtime win with Wilson in 1960.
4: I wrestled Dick Wilson in the finals, my uh, sophomore year at maryland and he he was running up from the year before, and I rolled him now Granby rolled him a couple of times, but on the on the takedown, he never shot a takedown, and I shot like a low ankle shot, a sweep and I got his foot and he kicked out, and he got the takedown and so at the, at the end of the match, I had to ride him out. I hadn't ridden him hardly at all. I had to ride him out the last 30 seconds, 45 seconds, to win the match. And Coach Jack, on the way home, the next day, he says, you know, if a guy has a wide stance like this, and you go to sweep him, he has good lateral motion. He said, but he can't move back, forward and back. So he said, you know, he's maybe a double leg. So I wrestled him the next year in the finals, double legging twice. You know, he realized just that just changing your take, hitting the guy straight on when he's got a wide base that he can't move. But if you try to sweep him, he has good lateral motion.
3: 1962 would be another opportunity for Lockhaven to win a team championship in the NAIA with rival Bloomsburg giving chase. The 1962 championships would be in Winona, Minnesota, another car trip for Coach Jack and company. This time, the usual suspects of Jack Day, Gray Simons, and Biff Walliser would be relied upon to score big points. And so would Fred Powell.
2: I wasn't sure I was going to go there. Actually, my first while I was being recruited was by Virginia Tech. And Virginia Tech had a history of of recruiting a lot of Granby boys to go there because of the in-state, down Blacksburg, but no one really had any great success. But I'm saying, where else am I going to go? There was no Old Dominion at that time. That was a different name. That was the College of Women Mary. I I have to hitchhike to uh, Virginia Tech, and uh, that's how I was recruited. Then shortly after that, uh, a boy by the name of uh, Johnny Epperly who wrestled at Granby with Gray? Johnny Uckley went to Lock Haven first, and then Gray followed and went on to Lock Haven. I don't know if uh, Johnny recruited him or not, but I just know that when I was looking at Virginia Tech, I was ready to leave, packed, ready to go on a Saturday, and uh, Mr. Hubert Jack, Coach Jack at Lock Haven, came to my house and talked to me about uh, going to Lock Haven. And Johnny Epperly and uh, Hubert Jack w- would uh, talk to me about Lock Haven. Well, then two days later, I left for Lock Haven.
3: With Fred Powell in the lineup, Lock Haven had a formidable first four weights. Gray Simons at 115, Fred Powell at 123, Biff Walliser at 130, and Jack Day at 137. The quartet even had their own nickname.
2: I uh, think it was four of us we called the Four Gruesome Foursome that we were so successful from Gray, myself, Biff, and Jack Day were the, were the four. We're pretty consistent winners. And we just, you know, would battle at, at practice and we would just know that, okay, if we score a point on Gray, then that's, hey, you want to celebrate.
3: That offseason, a rule change would limit Simon's scoring. Takedowns were normally two points, but the rule change said only the first takedown of a match was two points. Every subsequent takedown was just one. Some believe it was aimed at Oklahoma State's crafty take-em-down-let-em-up style, while others clamored for more mat wrestling. Whatever the impetus for the rule change, it impacted takedown artists like Simon's on the scoreboard, but not necessarily in the win column. In 1962, Lockhaven's wrestling world was also centered around rival Bloomsburg. The Huskies and legendary coach Russ Howe could own the Pennsylvania State College scene, having not lost a dual meet in three years. At the Nationals in 1961, it was Lockhaven that was the upstart winner. But in 1962, it would be a dogfight. Undefeated since his freshman year, Simons was cruising along, wrestling at 123 pounds most of the year, and then dropping to 115 pounds for the national tournaments. But on January 27, 1962, undefeated Bloomsburg would come into Thomas Fieldhouse at Lockhaven to take on the undefeated Bald Eagles, the first of three showdowns between the two squads. New Jersey native Joel Malitsky would be Gray Simons' foe in the duel, but Lockhaven had to stare in the face of adversity, including an injury to its most talented star here's Jack Day.
1: We lost one match our last two years. That was to Bloomsburg, who had a great team back then. We lost by one point. And one of the matches we wrestled Bloomsburg, Gray had a top rib cartilage, and he was in terrible pain. But he still went out and wrestled one that of our t- really tough guys to. It. And that was an inspiration to all of us. You know, how can he do this? We had popped rib cartridge. I don't know if you know what that is or not. Cart cartilage between your ribs popped out and it's very, very painful. But he went out and wrestled anyway.
3: Sports Illustrated, which at the time had rarely featured wrestling, was in town doing a feature on Simons. And Herman Weisskopf of SI was there to witness one of Gray Simon's prettiest performances.
5: Bloomsburg had taken the State Teachers College Championship for the past two years, and victory again seemed certain when, a few days before the match, Simons tore a cartilage in his chest and appeared to be definitely sidelined. But on the day of the match, Lockhaven coach Herb Jack was taken to the hospital, a pneumonia victim, and Bill Radford, another Granby High boy who wrestles at 157 pounds, was also hospitalized because of an infected boil. Simons, who had almost nothing to gain and a lot to lose, decided he would try to give his team a lift by competing in spite of his injury. With more than 4,000 spectators crushed into every corner of Lock Haven's Thomas Fieldhouse, Simons took on Joel Malitzki. As he almost always does, Simons got a first period takedown, giving him a 2-0 lead. His injury, however, was more serious than he had believed, and he was unable to hold his man. Molitski's escape gave him one point. Thanks to his amazing speed, Simons was able to score more takedowns, each one after the first is worth one point, but always had to let Molitski escape. Thus Simons led 5-4 as the bout neared the end. By this time, the wrestling-wise crowd realized from the way sweat poured off Simons and the way he winced occasionally that he was hurt. Molitski sensed it too and went for a takedown, Simons staved him off, backtracked, moved out of reach, and then lunged in. He got another takedown but again had to let Militsky go. A few seconds later the match ended, with Simons a 6-5 winner. Some people in the stands cried. Without Simons' victory, his 72nd in a row, Lock Haven would have lost. With it, the team got its 17th straight win, 16-12.
3: Bloomsburg would get one back at the conference championships a few weeks later at the Pennsylvania State Conference Tournament. Bloomsburg would edge Lockhaven 96-91 despite Lockhaven winning five out of six head-to-head finals. Gray Simons, Fred Powell, Biff Walliser, and Jack Day swept the titles all up from their national weights, but it wasn't enough as the powerful Bloomsburg upperweights, anchored by eventual three-time NAIA champion Bill Garson, gave Russ Howe's squad the conference championship. In Winona, Minnesota it would be that dogfight. A 15 hour drive from central Pennsylvania is Winona, Minnesota, home of Winona State College, right on the banks of the mighty Mississippi. Also mighty were the title contending squads from the Keystone State, Bloomsburg, Lock Haven, and Lycoming, along with Midwestern powers, Moorhead State and Winona State of Minnesota. Bloomsburg and Lockhaven both sent five wrestlers, with the Bald Eagles five again loading up for Coach Huber Jack's car for yet another cross country trip. Lockhaven took a hit right away as 177 pounder Ivan Dengies fell in the first round to one known as Pat Flaherty. Coach Jack and his team had to wait. The consolation brackets in that era are similar to what we have now with international wrestling, save the French sounding name Repichat. They just called it follow the leader. If you lost a wrestler who made the finals, you got pulled back in for a chance to wrestle for third. Dengies would play the waiting game. Gray Simons, on the other hand, didn't. As he'd done 77 times in a row before, Simons would win, taking his quarterfinal opponent, Terry Zastro of Luther College, down 12-3. Moments later, Lockhaven's title hopes took another hit. At 130 pounds, returning champion Biff Walliser was knocked off by an upstart Ohio native from West Liberty State College named Robert Douglas. You may know him better as Bobby. With two men now waiting, Simons stepped up again, defeating Bill McCreary of Superior State, now known as UW-Superior, 8-5. That semifinal win put Simons in the finals for a fourth straight year. Winona State's Pat Flaherty was beaten by Eastern Illinois' Jim Gardner in the semis at 177 pounds, eliminating Dengues from placement contention. Fred Powell took out Lycoming's Lee Wolf 7-2 in the semifinals, while Day pinned Eastern Oregon's Jack Eckenrode to give the Bald Eagles three finalists. Bloomsburg matched it, sending Dick Scaresi to the finals at 137 pounds opposite Jack Day, Robert Hall to the finals at 177, and returning champ Bill Garson at 191 pounds. Bloomsburg had two other wrestlers pulled back in. Fred Powell would fall in the 123-pound finals to Arthur Mon of Moorhead State. You may know him better as Bucky. Day would get his title and exact a little personal satisfaction on their rivals by defeating Bloomsburg's Dick Scaresi. Day had later learned that Scaresi had stayed at 137 pounds, almost in defiance of coach Russ Houck, who was reported to have saying, you can't beat Day. Hauck was right. History didn't elude Gray Simons, though, as he pinned Ford Hayes State's Jim Belch to become the first wrestler in NAIA history to claim four collegiate national championships and the first wrestler to achieve the feat in any division. Ultimately, the team title was out of reach as Bloomsburg outpointed Lockhaven 56-47 to reclaim the NAIA national championship. Gray Simons would be named the tournament's outstanding wrestler for the fourth time, also a first in collegiate wrestling history. A couple weeks later in Stillwater, Simons would wrestle the last four bouts of his collegiate career. With 79 or 80 wins in a row, Gray was adding to his then-college-record win streak. To this day, those win streak records are a matter of dispute, not necessarily for Gray, but amateur wrestling news editor Jess Hoke reported in the March 21, 1962 edition that it stood at 79 wins in a row going in. And since AWN is the sports publication of record, we'll go with that for the purposes of this story, at least for now. Gray Simons would have more eyes on him than ever as Gallagher Hall, named for famed Oklahoma State coach E.C. Gallagher, would host the 1962 NCAA wrestling championships. A record 249 entries were set to compete from 60 schools, including one of the smallest wrestlers from one of the smallest schools, Gray Simons. Hope believed Simons' top competition would come from Big 8 champion Mark McCracken, a Stillwater native wrestling not only in his home gym, but his hometown. Colorado State's Gil Sanchez was also a threat as was EIWA champion Bill Merriam, Simon's old high school teammate, who made the move down to 115 from 123 pounds where he won the Easterns. It was an easy win for the Oklahoma State Cowboys, setting a then-record distance between them and rival Oklahoma. The 37-point win over the Sooners was the main headline, but at least one Cowboy would be disappointed. Simons was the top seed and easily defeated Southern Illinois' Isidore Ramos in the opening round, 13-4. In the quarters, it was Iowa's Fran McCann. Simons took home a 6-3 victory. In the semifinals, it was expected Gray would see Oklahoma's Wally Curtis, who finished third in 1961. But Curtis was beaten by Virginia Tech's Mike Grandstaff 5-3. So here we are again, senior year in college, and who stands in front of Gray Simons and his path for history but an old friend and teammate. Here's Gray.
4: Well, we had been, you know, we were on the same team for a while, so we were friends. then you know he was attacked I was at uh, Lock Haven and uh, when I had wrestled him and I had wrestled him before in the Wilkes tournament in Pennsylvania and uh, I had beaten him up there so I think what when we first wrestled at Granby and even when he was at Norview he was a little man and I was still a little boy (laughs) you know he was like And then I got maturity, physical maturity, and after I got that, then I could compete with him.
3: Simons moved on past his childhood rival 6-3 to face McCracken in the finals. McCracken was seeded second and had a one-point win over Western State's Van Doty in the first round before beating Granby alum and Michigan State standout Oakla Johnson in the quarters. Granby coach Billy Martin was in attendance, not just to watch Gray chase history, but to watch nine of his former comets compete, including Gray's younger brother Wayne who was wrestling at 130 pounds for Oklahoma State. In the semifinals it was McCracken beating Gil Sanchez by injury default. The finals would not be close. Gray Simons beat Mark McCracken on his home mat 7-2 to become the 20th wrestler in NCAA history to win three NCAA championships. his win streak, whether it be 83 or 84 in a row, was an NCAA record, one that would stand until 1970, when a man from Waterloo, Iowa, named Danny Mac Gable, wrestling for Iowa State, would break it.
4: I don't know if I had wrestled any guys from Oklahoma State or not, but, yeah, I think I did one year, maybe my junior year at Oregon, I might have had an Oklahoma State guy, but, you know, I wasn't, uh, I was mentally prepared, had to prepare myself for it, the hardest one far was the first championship against Wilson and after that then I felt better about, it, about competing with, on that level.
3: Going into the NCAA Championships, Gray Simons wasn't quite sure what he was going to do post-college. He knew the Olympics were still a goal two years away in Tokyo in 1964. What were his options to facilitate that goal? Well a coach in West Point, New York already had an option laid out for him. Here's Gray.
4: The West Point coach, Lee Allis, talks to me. He says, we'd like for you to have a come up to West Point. And he said, you know, that's where Doug Blueball went. Doug wrestled through college, but then he went in the Army for two years, and then he won, he won the Olympics. And then a guy that replaced Doug at West Point, uh, Greg Ruth, who wrestled at Lehigh, then Oklahoma, who was, a, he was an NCAA champ. And he was there. And so they were looking for someone to replace him. So I thought, well, two years, I'm gonna to have to be in the Army anyway, I'm gonna be drafted. If I go now, you know, I, I could graduate from college in 62, those two years I'll be in the Army, I can be, get up at West Point. And, and Leroy Alex had talked to me about it. Mm-hmm. So I decided I'd do that. So I went to camp, basic camp at Fort Jackson, South Carolina.
3: But when it was time to answer the call for Uncle Sam, Ray went down to Fort Jackson, just outside the state capital of Columbia in South Carolina. He wasn't planning on wrestling during basic training, but sometimes impromptu matches come your way.
4: all the new guys coming in, they pick someone out to be in charge of that that group. So they picked this, uh, this guy. For some reason, I was little, he started picking on me. One day he goes to grab me, and I foot swept him and threw him on his back. Behind me, someone grabs both my arms, and I start to th- shoulder-throw him. they going, no, 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 it was a sergeant. <laughs> oh, I had one other guy, too, uh, try to headlock me, and I hip-locked him and knocked, knocked all the air out of him. And After that, people left me alone.
3: Once out of basic training, Gray Simons reported to his assignment the United States Military Academy in West Point, New York. His job to serve but also to represent the Army in international wrestling competition and prepare to make the 1964 U.S. Olympic team.
4: I, won, I, won, I was stationed up at West Point so I was wrestling in a bunch of tournaments all over the country. I can remember I wrestled one in Michigan and they had a guy there he won the Michigan tournament at 36. I won at 25. Afterwards, they had a party that night, so I went to that. And he says to me, "He says you're a funny wrestler. He says, All your wrestling looks so pretty."
5: <laughs>
4: so I, so I said, "Yeah." I said, "Well, that's the way it looks." So, but I had to wrestle him in the AUS. He can't drop down to 25. He shot in, I countered him, and he turned in. I cradled him and I pinned him. That was a good feeling in
3: 1964 the process for the olympic trials was very similar to what it was in 1960 with the exception being that the final trials camp wasn't months after the final olympic trials tournament it was just 10 days The final olympic trials tournament would take place at the world's fair in new york city in august of 1964. at the final trials tournament simons reached the finals at 114 and a half beating granby teammate oakland johnson in the finals locking him into the top position in the ladder for camp which again was a series of wrestle-offs to determine who would head to tokyo earlier that year at the national aau championships simons beat dave aubel in the finals at 125 and a half pounds Simons could have been the favorite at either 114.5 or 125.5 but told Jamie Moffat and wrestlers at the Trials he went down to 114.5 because he felt like he had a better chance at a gold medal there. At the Trials camp it wouldn't be a Gramby teammate he would face as Oakla Johnson was knocked off by a 19-year-old funk machine from Portland, Oregon named Rick Sanders, a 1963 high school graduate who would later win gold at the Munich Games in 1972 and become one of wrestling's greatest innovators. Simons won the best of three series 6-1 and 2-0 to earn his second straight spot on the U.S. Olympic team. Next stop for Gray Simons, Tokyo.
4: That was a lot better. We, I think flying over there, we, uh, we trained in California. And uh, after, after all the tournaments, we went to California and trained. So we flew over the North Pole to Japan that way. The wrestling was the, uh, they had the, I think they had the freestyle first. That was good because then you had, you could, you know, see other stuff too.
3: Once again, we enter the international scoring system, or the black mark system, where again, zero points if you win by a fall, one point if you win by a decision, two points if you tie, three points if you lose by a decision, four points if you're pinned, so in 1964, at 114.5 pounds, Gray Simons would take the mat against Stoiko Mailov of Bulgaria. He won by decision. One black mark. In round two, Gray Simons would face off again with Ali Aliyev of the Soviet Union, a three-time world champion and 1963 world silver medalist back for another crack at the Olympics. This one would end in a tie. Two black marks for Gray Simons. One win. No defeats. One tie. In the third round, he would trounce India's Malawa Singh 13-0, but no fall. One black mark. In round four, he would then take on Iran's Syed Ali Akbar Heydari. He would not win. He would not lose. Yet another tie. But doing the math, one point in the win by decision. Two points for the tie. One point in the win by decision. Two points in the tie. After four rounds and no defeats, Gray Simons was eliminated from medal contention. Here again is longtime wrestling historian and author Mike Chapman.
0: Uh, I've talked to Wayne Bachman, who was on that team, and Doug Bluebaugh, and they just, they both said they thought there was no question at that time Gray Simons was the best wrestler in the world at his point. And, Wayne Bachman, who made five Olympic teams and 13 world championship teams, and won 16 national titles, he told me this for the book, Legends of the Map. This is a quote. I do believe Gray Simon should have been a world or Olympic champion, but the thing that hurt him was the soft, slow European mats. Gray and some of our other fast wrestlers were slowed down substantially when they would sink in the mats up to their ankles. There's no consistency or dependability on those mats, and they really threw Gray's timing off. No one in the world could stay with him if they wrestled on American mats. So that's kind of an endorsement from one of the greatest wrestlers in American history. And so the black black mark system combined with these slow European mats made a big difference in Gray's international career.
3: The final weight placements would look like this. Japan's Yoshikatsu Yoshida would win gold. Jang chang Son of Korea would take silver, Haidari would take bronze, and Aliyev would take fourth. The two wrestlers that Gray tied were bronze and fourth. Aliyev would later win a 1966 and 1967 World Championship, but in 1968, he would ultimately finish just out of medal contention yet again in fourth. Gray Simons, without a loss, finished seventh at the 1964 Olympic Games.
4: You know, you do what you can do. There's nothing, you know, you can't control everything. You can only control what you can do. And you gotta, you do your best and gotta roll with it.
3: On the next episode of Seven, Gray Simons returns to Lockhaven to take over as the program's head coach. There's success, but it's also not easy for the greatest the school has ever seen. A new chapter in his life begins to be written. Gray Simons becomes a family man. All that and an unexpected shift next time on Seven. Seven is a presentation at the National Wrestling Hall of Fame in Stillwater, Oklahoma. This episode is written and produced by Jason Bryant. Historical research provided in part by Wrestlers at the Trials by James V. Moffitt, Amateur Wrestling News Volumes 6 through 10, Little Man with a Big Lock on Records, Sports Illustrated's Herman Weisskopf, March 26, 1962, and the National Wrestling Hall of Fame.